Hey everybody, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan from Bucks County Community College, just outside of Philadelphia. Today's episode, we have a special treat. We are going to do our very first interview with a guest. So we have a guest on today's podcast, and that guest is a good friend of mine whose name is Dr. Charles Welsh from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Dr. Welsh teaches human anatomy and physiology at Duquesne, and he also is the author of a textbook, and that textbook is called Holes, Essentials in Human Anatomy and Physiology. It's now at its 14th edition, and it's published by McGraw-Hill Higher Education. Now, I met Chuck, uh, I believe in Salt Lake City, Utah, when we were both at the National Conference for the Human Anatomy and Physiology Society, which is called HAPS. And um, we met because, one, we were both attendees at this great conference that we have every year in a different city, and uh, we're both authors for McGraw-Hill. So we were introduced to one another, and we became fast friends. So I do hope you enjoy this short conversation I had with Dr. Welsh, and then we will get into today's content topic, the human brain. Okay, welcome, Dr. Chuck Welsh from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Steve. Appreciate it. It's really good to see you. How have you been handling the uh, pandemic and uh, teaching? Well, it's been challenging. We're doing a what's called a high flex model where some of the students are there live and uh, the rest of them are watching on Zoom. Oh, okay. So you have to handle you have to handle your students that are with you in person and the online component at the same time. Wow, that seems like a challenge. It was at first, but then it got kind of interesting because the students on Zoom wouldn't say anything, but now they are uh, they're much more confident and they'll ask questions during lecture, which is good. Oh, wow, that is really good. All right. Well, that's good. Do you have any um, hope of getting back to normal in the springtime? So far, I think the university claims we're still going to be under COVID restrictions. Um, so well, probably not. Probably not till the fall, I'm imagining. Yeah, same with us at Bucks. Uh, we're going to be we're going to be this way until the fall. Yeah. So, um, so let me ask you this. So you've been writing a textbook for a while now, the Holes Essentials of Human Anatomy and Physiology book. And um, that's kind of exciting because that's out and about for students right now, right? Yes, it is. Yes, just this fall. Oh, that's, that's great. I actually just um, had a question in the last episode of the podcast about a recommended book for a student who's not yet taking A&P. And um, that was one of the books I suggested would be a good way to get started. Um, would be to get your hands on a book that's written in a way that's really relatable for students. Yeah, that was our goal in, re- in revising the, the Essentials book, is that you know, make it very readable and approachable. Um, I guess we could call it user-friendly. You know, yeah. You know, the, the language is such that it's, it's an easy read, straightforward. You know. Yeah, yeah that's, that's cool. cool. Um, so, so let me, let me ask, ask you this. this. When, when you're, you're teaching, teaching A&P... A&P what would you say is your favorite topic to teach about? I know you have a background with your background, like you in ornithology, right? You, you do research on birds. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> so what is your favorite topic to teach in A&P? My favorite topic is muscles and bones, especially the skeletal system. I just love the skeletal system. But, uh, yeah. You and me are together on that one. 
Yeah, there, there's so much hidden information in a skeletal system. For instance, um, you can determine uh, the gender of a skeleton easily. There's a lot of landmarks. Uh, age at the time of death of the skeleton. Now, a lot of that information not might exactly serve the, the nursing students for their NCLEX exam, but it does keep them engaged with the material. You know, it's, it's more than just naming things. Oh, there's, there, there's interesting information here. Um, for instance, uh, the parietal bones are slightly differently shaped in males versus females. You know? Oh, really? So, so you're, you're um, and just, just to make sure that we're catching everybody, parietal bones on the lateral side of your skull in your cranium. So there, so men and women have a different shaped parietal bone? Yeah, the parietal bones are a little more bulbous in a female. And when we're under normal circumstances and not COVID restrictions, I actually have the students in the lab go around and feel each other's heads. Really? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I wonder if that's to make room for, for uh, women's bigger brains. Yes, I, th I think I, I go with that. I think that's the diplomatic way to go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Oh, that's a really interesting time. I didn't, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. And, and the mandible is uh, a slightly different shape. Uh, a male mandible is a little more squared off. You know, okay. a female mandible like has a little more oval shape to it. So, so it's fun stuff. Yeah, that is really cool that you can look at a completely, uh, you know, a skeleton with no soft tissue and still be able to tell that it was male or female. Millions of years later. Yes. Yeah, that, that's really, really excellent. So, so knowing that you probably don't cover a whole lot of that in an essentials textbook, uh, what would be your favorite topic to write about? Oh, that's interesting. What I have found challenging in the revision of the text, and, I, and I've been working on this for you know, 30 years teaching, is the nervous system, and in particular, the action potential. Mm -hmm. My goal, and I guess I, you could say I was on a mission, to condense that and write it at a level that it's, once again, very approachable and readable. There's so much going on uh, that you have to pick and choose exactly what the most important concepts are. And you know, you've been teaching this for years, so you understand what I'm talking about. And if you check some of the textbooks, um, they go into various levels. In the Essentials book, I just want them to understand exactly what's happening with the passage of sodium, potassium, why it's important, and just, once again, be very straightforward. Now, that sounds easy, but that presented me a big challenge. That was the chapter that I sp spent the most time on. Okay. Yeah, we actually just had an episode uh, recently that covered membrane potential local potentials, action potentials, depolarization. And what I found um, the most challenging in trying to present it in a way that would relate to a podcast listener was making sure that I um, explained the terminology so that if I say depolarize, do they know what I mean by polarized? Right, right. Does so, so a lot of times I, I find instructors will just use words like depolarization without explaining what what was the state before and why did we call that polar so what does depolarize mean and then then repolarize and hyperpolarize starts to make a lot more sense sure but if you have to set the stage you have to explain it polarity means being somewhere away from neutral somewhere away from yeah. zero well that's excellent that's a good that's a good answer especially with um, considering where we are in the episodes here that you brought the nervous system into play because we just did nerve tissue a couple episodes ago. Um, so I got one more question for you, Chuck. What would you say is something important about human anatomy and physiology that students don't typically get in a freshman, sophomore A&P course? 
Yes, I would have to say the reproductive system. Okay. And it's interesting because I think, you know, when I talk to instructors, some of them cover it in more detail than others. But let's face it, and I tell the students this, it is the one system you can live without. So when you're, you know, up against the wall for time in a semester, it would be the one that would get shortchanged a little bit. Um, yeah, plus it's always at the end of a textbook too, so that doesn't help either. So it's not getting any love at all. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yep. It, it, it's getting put, put at the end. Um, but we do try to squeeze it in as, as much as we can. You know, there's, there's a big push. For, you know, the topics that come before that, the urinary system and fluid and electrolyte balance, those are so darned important. And the students yeah. are going to find so much of that material on the NCLEX exam. So you've really got to give that a lot of, a lot of time and development. Well, that's, that's a really good point. I, and I think you're right. I think that, that that does happen because, I mean, you know it, we know it, probably most of the listeners know it. We go super fast in these classes and we run out of time anyway. Yes, we do. Um, th there's just not enough time to teach the students everything that's important, especially for preclinical students. But and as the years progressed, you know, when you first start teaching, and you probably have the same experience, you open up a textbook and you think you have to teach every single word in there. <laughs> so Yeah, right, right. And it takes a couple of years to realize, you know, what are the most salient points? What do you really have to cover? What can you, you know, leave out? Um, and it, not everybody agrees on all these points, but I think there's probably a 90% overlap in what instructors try to cover in a two-semester course. So let me ask you a question. What do you think is the most challenging thing to teach? For you to teach and for them to learn. Uh, that's a good, that's a good question. I'll say probably for them to learn is the earlier molecular biology stuff, because I think that when a student comes into an anatomy and physiology class, they come in thinking, oh, this is going to be cool. Bones, muscles, organs. I got this. And then, and then they spend the first six weeks learning about cells and, and protein synthesis and histology. <laughs> and, and they're like, what the hell is this? And, I, and you can you see know, their perplexed and, looks yeah. as they walk out of the first yeah. lecture. What is this I guy think, doing? I think the biggest challenge is always establishing relevance so that the students are interested and engaged. And it's really hard to get students who are in there to be physical therapists and nurses and orthopedic um, specialists. And, and it's hard for them to understand why this thing about amino acids and transcription and translation is so important. Yes. And so, cell biology and molecular biology are rapidly advancing and it's hard to keep up. That was a huge challenge to make sure that I yeah. was current and what was going on. And my co-author Cindy in the, in the, the big holes book, uh, she was charged with that chapter, and I know she spent a fair amount of time, you know, making sure that everything she was uh, saying was correct, you know, and, and current. And, and then we had the challenge of whether we should use the term cell membrane or plasma membrane. They're interchangeable, but, you know, there's, there's old school thought on it, and, and I, I'm not going to come down on one side or the other. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I tend to go back and forth with plasma membrane and cell membrane and, and, um, you know, yeah, there, there's, we could have a whole episode on, um, nomenclature and how much, how much, uh, overlap and, and duplication there is in nomenclature. Yes. So, well, Chuck, I don't want to take up any more of your time. This has been a lot of fun. It's good to see you, even though it's on zoom. Usually we get to see each other at HAPS. And, um, you know, I miss you. Well, I surely missed that this year. 
Yeah, me too. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, see each other in person sometime soon. Sounds great. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thanks so much, Chuck. Oh, well, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much to my first ever guest on the podcast, Dr. Chuck Welsh from Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and again, author of Holes Essentials of a Human Anatomy and Physiology, published by McGraw-Hill Education. Uh, that was a really good time. I'm so glad that you were able to get to hear that from such a brilliant educator. So without further ado, uh, we got some brain stuff to talk about. So let's get after it. We're going to get into the brain and we're going to start off in this episode just kind of really introducing you to the way the brain is organized and some of the basic uh, regions of the brain and some major landmarks of the brain and things like that. So we're going to start off with that in this episode and and talk about a little bit of what the brain has in common with the spinal cord. So the spinal cord, if you remember from that episode, has a three covering, a three-layer covering called the meninges. And the brain has the same thing. So the three-layer covering that protects the spinal cord also protects the brain. And the spaces associated with that with that um, meninges is also very similar. So the deepest layer is the pia mater, and the pia mater is directly attached to the brain surface, and there are um, blood vessels embedded in that pia mater that supply the brain tissue. Then the next layer is called the arachnoid mater, and that is the spider webby stuff that we remember from the spinal cord, and the space between the pia mater and the arachnoid mater is the subarachnoid space. And the subarachnoid space is just basically be beneath or deep to the arachnoid mater, so that makes sense. The next layer is the dura mater. That's the thick, durable layer, right? Dura mater. And um, the space between the dura mater and the arachnoid mater is the subdural space. So you may have heard of the phrase a subdural hematoma. That's a collection of blood in that subdural space, which can be really dangerous in the brain because the pressure that the blood pooling puts on the brain is really, really dangerous. So the skull actually provides this hard shell, this hard protective layer of the, for the brain the cranium, and that makes it so that the blood can't release any pressure and the pressure has to go inward on the brain itself. So a subdural hematoma would be caused by some kind of traumatic injury or maybe a cerebrovascular hemorrhage where blood leaks out into the subdural space. Now, the dura mater for the brain is different than it is for the spinal cord. There's actually two layers of dura mater, and in most parts of the uh, meninges, those two layers are directly attached to each other. The superficial layer that is uh, on the bone side is called the periosteal layer because it contacts the periosteum of the internal cranium, and the deeper layer is the meningeal layer. When you get to the top, to the vertex, or the, the superior most aspect of the cranial cavity, 
those two layers of dura mater split. One of them remains adhered to the surface of the cranium, and the other goes down uh, inferiorly so that it meets up with the other side coming up the side of the brain, and they form like a V with a roof on it. So the periosteal layer of the dura mater is the roof, and then the two opposite, the two contralateral meningeal layers of dura mater, they both dive down in between the two hemispheres of the brain. And that creates a space. So it's almost like you have the letter Y with a roof on top. And there's a space, the space where, where the, that part of the letter Y that looks like a V would be, that space is called the superior sagittal sinus. And it will have cerebrospinal fluid inside of it. Now that double layer of meningeal layer of dura mater that dives down between the two hemispheres of the brain is called the falx cerebri. Falx is F as in Frank, A-L-X as an X-ray. So that exists in the space between the two hemispheres of the brain. And that space between the, the hemispheres is called the longitudinal fissure. So just to recap real quick, the dura mater in the brain has two layers. One layer directly attached to the inside of the cranial bones called the periosteal layer. And a deeper layer called the meningeal layer that splits off from the periosteal layer and dives down into the longitudinal fissure between the two cerebral hemispheres of the brain from both sides, meeting up and forming the thick wall between the two hemispheres called the falx cerebri. Don't forget that space that's left by that new Y formation is called the superior sagittal sinus and it's filled with cerebrospinal fluid. What are the things about the brain that is different from the way we study the anatomy of the rest of the body is in our directional terms. So because of the way the brain is organized in our dissection specimens, like cats and sheep, um, and those are quadrupeds, those are animals that are on all four legs, and we're, we stand up on two. So our brain is superior to the rest of our body, but in a four-legged animal, like a dog or a sheep, the brain is actually anterior to the spinal cord and the spine and the rest of the body. So we use some different terminology when we talk about the parts of the brain. The anterior part of the brain, the brain that's closer to our face, is what we call rostral, which means toward the nose rather than anterior. And the posterior part, the part that's in the back, we call that caudal or toward the tail. So rostral instead of anterior, caudal instead of posterior. Okay, so now that we've got that covered, uh, what I want to do is focus on just the basic anatomy of the brain in terms of the parts uh, for the rest of this episode. So we're not going to really get too much into function of each individual part. We will definitely cover that in another episode. But I want to get into the structure. 
So the brain is divided up into different regions, and there's and sometimes you'll hear people use the term high, hindbrain and forebrain, cerebrum and diencephalon and brainstem, and you'll see your cerebellum. You'll hear all of those different terms, and they're all accurate. Um, I want to start off by by looking at the uh, bottom from the spinal cord up, right? So we'll start off with where the spinal cord ends in the in the cervical spine, like right above C1 vertebra, as it enters the foramen magnum, the very most, most inferior part of the brain is called the brain stem. And the reason why I like to look at it from the bottom up in that way is because that's really, from an evolutionary perspective, that's the same order that we can use for age of our brain. So the, the deepest, most inferior portions of our brain are also the oldest from an evolutionary perspective. They're the ones that have been around in species for the longest. So they usually have the most primitive functions. So when, it, when we talk about the brainstem, depending on which author you're talking to in terms of textbook authors, the brainstem has either three or four parts. Some, some consider only three. The medulla oblongata, which is the most inferior portion, the one that turns right into the spinal cord. The next one up, which is called the pons. And then the next one up is called the midbrain. And then some people also consider the diencephalon, which includes the thalamus, hypothalamus, epithalamus, and subthalamus. Now, if you consider all four parts, then those are the four parts of the brainstem. But if they only consider three parts of the brainstem, then they stop at the midbrain. So the medulla oblongata is the most inferior portion of the brain, and it consists of these uh, big bulbous anterior um, protrusions or rostral protrusions called medullary pyramids, the pyramids of the medulla. And um, those pyramids are going to come in handy when we discuss some uh, different things uh, moving forward. But you may have remembered the spinal tracts that we talked about in a previous episode. And some of these spinal tracts go through the medullary pyramids, and we call them pyramidal tracts. And some of them, they go outside the medullary pyramids, and we call those extrapyramidal so some spinal tracts are extrapyramidal, and some are pyramidal. Now the pyramids of the medulla, they the nerve fibers in the in that structure actually cross the midline and go up the contralateral side of the brain. That is called the decussation of the pyramids, or the pyramidal decussation. To decussate means to cross the midline over to the other side. So there's a pyramidal decussation in the pyramids of the medulla. The next region up is the pons. And the pons is look, looks kind of like a beer belly, actually. It's, it's like a, it's a big bulbous anterior projection or really rostral projection of the, uh, of the middle part of the brainstem. Uh, the posterior part of the pons actually backs up against a space called the fourth ventricle. That space is filled with cerebrospinal fluid, 
and is directly connected to another space called the third ventricle that we'll talk about a little bit later. So that's the pons. The pons is the middle portion. The next one up is the midbrain. And the midbrain is interesting because it's divided into its own uh, regions. So in the midbrain, you have these two big, thick, white matter anterior projections. And don't forget about gray matter and white matter. The brain also has gray matter and white matter, just like the spinal cord did. But in the midbrain, you've got these two big, chunky columns anteriorly, and those are called the cerebral peduncles. And the cerebral peduncles have um, white matter spinal tracts going up through them so that there's communication up and down the spinal cord. Now, each cerebral peduncle, there's one on each side, each cerebral peduncle has three parts to it. The most caudal part is called the tegmentum. The tegmentum is the region that's closest to the center of the midbrain. And it includes an area called the red nucleus, which is actually like a red type stuff. You might have heard some of the tracts from earlier episodes called the rubrospinal, that rubro for red uh, in the red nucleus there. Then we have a thin layer of, of a, like a black substance that runs kind of the width of the cerebral peduncle called the substantia nigra, which literally means black substance. And then just rostral to that is the cerebral crus, which is the big white portion of these cerebral peduncles. Now in the posterior part of the midbrain, we have what's called the tectum. And the tectum consists of the colliculi. There are four like half spherical structures, like semi-spheres, in that posterior region of the midbrain, in the tectum, called the colliculi. And all four of them together is called the corpora quadrigemina which means the four bodies. The two superior ones are called the superior colliculi, and the two inferior ones are the inferior colliculi. In the center of the midbrain, between, but really it's kind of in the tectum, but it's in the center of the midbrain, there is a hole that connects the third ventricle, which is up near the cerebrum, to the fourth ventricle, which is posterior to the pons. And that channel is called the cerebral aqueduct. And it's a way for cerebrospinal fluid to flow through all the spaces of the brain. Okay, so that's the midbrain. The midbrain has like a pretty decent uh, amount of stuff going on with it. Lots of an anatomical structures uh, associated with the midbrain. Now, these parts of the brainstem also have the nuclei or the, the or origins of many of our cranial nerves. In fact, of the 12 pairs of cranial nerves that we have, and these are the nerves that innervate the head and neck directly from the brain and brainstem without having to go through the spinal cord, there are 12 pairs of cranial nerves, and 10 of them have their origins in the brainstem. Only two of them don't. That would be the olfactory and the optic nerves, which are cranial nerves one and two. The other 10 all have their origins in the brainstem. Now, throughout the brainstem, 
we have this structure. It's kind of like a, a loose, uh, a loose arrangement of gray matter that runs through the brainstem up and down, inferior to superior, superior to inferior. We have this structure called the reticular formation. And it goes throughout the brainstem. It's in the parts of the, the superior most areas of the spinal cord. And we're going to see it all over the place. It's going to take up a lot of the space in between white matter. So we know that up and down the brainstem, we have these tracts, these tracts of, of uh, axons that are carrying nerve signals superiorly and inferiorly from, to and from the brain and brainstem and spinal cord. Right? So in between those bundles of, of white matter tracts, we find this, this gray matter structure called the reticular formation. Now that reticular formation is responsible for a lot of the really important processes that your nervous system takes part in. Um, one of them, for example, is making sure that uh, motor coordination of your skeletal muscles is taking care of for you. So when you think about your muscle tone, um, maintaining balance, keeping your, your body upright against gravity, right? So your postural muscles, a lot of these things are associated with the reticular formation in your brainstem because you don't really have the bandwidth to kind of have to consciously take care of all that stuff all the time, right? So if you think about the way your eyes can track a moving object, right? So that requires a lot of motor coordination in the small muscles that move your eyeballs. So you have to have some really uh, deep level control that you don't have to think about and coordinate consciously. And that's taking place in this reticular formation. So controlling skeletal muscles in terms of tone and balance and posture, um, you know, those kinds of things. Maintaining your ability to track objects, hand-eye coordination is important for that, right? So if you can't track an object with your eyes and you can't actually block it from hitting you, and there's a reflex associated with that as well. So, um, so that's an important part of um, the reticular formation. Uh, they're also important in, in um, making sure that the muscles that are responsible for swallowing do so in like a nice coordinated uh, fashion so that way you can swallow something and it goes in the direction that you want it to go. Or making sure that you're breathing, right? These are skeletal muscles that are doing these things, right? So, um, so that's an important aspect of the brainstem as well is this reticular formation. Um, reticular formation also plays a role in controlling um, your uh, cardiovascular system, right? So we want to make sure that our arteries uh, can constrict and expand or dilate in a coordinated fashion, and the reticular formation helps to control that. Another really cool thing about the reticular formation is your ability to not pay attention to things that are... Um, really kind of repetitive in your life, things that you're used to, things that you've gotten really used to. Like, let's say, for instance, you live in a noisy city and there's ambulances and, and police sirens all night long and you can sleep right through it. These are things that you're just used to hearing. They're repetitive. Your brain can totally ignore them. This is called habituation, 
However, if you set an alarm clock, when that alarm clock goes off, that wakes you up. Even though it's not, it might not even be as loud as the sirens going on outside, right outside your window, right? Think about um, being in a room at a party or something, or in a restaurant where there's a lot of uh, back, like a lot of background talk going on, and you have no idea what anybody's saying. You're not paying attention to them. You're paying attention to the person you're talking to. But if one of those people says your name, your brain will alert to it, right? So this is the reticular formation. It's called habituation. And it is the ability to ignore all of these repetitive or things that don't really matter that are going on so that you can uh, focus on the things that you need to focus on. Uh, the part of the reticular formation that coordinates the cerebral cortex to those things is the reticular activating system. And that is the part that, that makes sure that, that it wakes up your, your cerebral cortex when something that you are um, interested in or something is consequential to you happens. Another thing that the reticular formation is responsible for is your levels of consciousness and whether or not you're awake. Um, in addition to deciding which things happening in the outside world are delivered to the part of your brain that will allow you to be aware of it, right? So your thalamus, for example, is a region of your, of your diencephalon that will route sensory nerve signals to different parts of your cerebral cortex. It's going to decide, using the reticular formation, which things really kind of merit your awareness. So which things do you really need to be conscious of in the universe happening right now? Uh, the reticular formation will make a decision on that kind of things. What needs your what needs you to be paying attention to it? Uh, that's the kind of thing, right? So, so think about that. Someone saying your name in a, uh, in a crowded room. Um, and then also because of, of what a level of consciousness really means, like are you conscious or unconscious, uh, if you have a traumatic injury to your brain that damages the reticular formation, this is the kind of thing that can result in a person being in a coma right? Being in a state of unconsciousness that, that they can't get you out of, right? So that, that's an important aspect as well. Finally, the reticular formation is responsible for regulating what kind of pain that you feel and are perceiving and are aware of, right? So there um, some of the tracts, some of the spinal tracts that carry nerve signals for tissue damage that result in the perception of pain travel through the reticular formation. And some of the pathways that your brain uses to, to, um, to lessen the amount of pain you feel run through the reticular formation. So this is an important aspect because there are certain instances where you have maybe an injury that is so devastating that if your brain allows you to perceive the level of pain proportional to the injury, it could be psychologically devastating and it could prevent you from being able to do anything about it. 
So um, I'll give you an example. There was a um, a story I heard about a woman who fell while she was rock climbing, and she fell quite a long way. And when she landed, she uh, shattered both of her legs. And she was quite a distance from the main road, and she was able to crawl to the main road until she until a car noticed her, and then a medevac, a hospital helicopter came to pick her up. And she said she didn't feel any pain until the helicopter got there. So that could be an example of the reticular formation modulating the pain that should have been perceived from that level of injury. But had she felt that amount of pain, she never would have been able to crawl to safety and get treated. So, and she probably would have just died there. So that's another uh, function. It's a really interesting uh, aspect of the brainstem is this reticular formation. Uh, it has a lot of really important roles. Just superior to the brainstem is the diencephalon. And the diencephalon includes the hypothalamus, which is a big player in your brain and in your endocrine system. We'll spend a lot more time talking about the hypothalamus later on, but it is, it is such a big deal in terms of brain function. Uh, the thalamus, which routes sensory signals to your cerebral cortex, and the subthalamus and epithalamus. These regions combine to form what's called the diencephalon. We will talk more about that later on when we get into more function. Posterior to the brainstem is what's called the cerebellum. And this is a piece that kind of looks like a little, like a cauliflower that is just in the base of your cranial cavity around the area of the occipital lobe, or occipital bone, I should say. And the cerebellum is mostly associated with motor coordination, making sure that your skeletal muscles are actually doing what you had planned for your skeletal muscles to do. Um, so that's called the cerebellum. And then finally, the biggest part of your brain, which surrounds the diencephalon, sits on top of the diencephalon, is on both sides of the diencephalon, is the cerebrum. This is the part of your brain that's divided up into hemispheres, into two main halves, with that longitudinal fissure right down the middle. The cerebrum is the most um, complex part of your brain. It is the part that's associated with your cognitive ability, your intelligence, your reaction to social cues, your behaviors, your ability to recall memories and to integrate memories and experiences and to make predictions based on experiences. You know, all of those things are tied into your cerebrum. And the cerebrum has some deeper parts and then a wrinkly shell surrounding it called the cerebral neocortex. And it is going to be the origin of all of your skeletal, your voluntary skeletal muscle movements. It's the destination. It's the last place to go for all of your sensory nerve signals for which you'll be aware. So if it's a sensation that you are aware of, that you perceive, that went to your cerebral neocortex. Uh, each of those wrinkles on the surface is called a gyrus. 
the plural being gyri, and each little space between the gyri is called a sulcus. And the cerebrum is divided up into lobes. Anteriorly, each hemisphere has a frontal lobe, and then just posterior to that, or I should say just caudal to that, are the parietal lobes, and then caudal to that still are the occipital lobes. Laterally on the side, we have temporal lobes down around the area of your ears. And then deep inside uh, of the temporal lobes, we can find what's called the insular lobes or the insula. So notice that with the exception of the insula, these lobes are named the same as the bones that are in those areas. The frontal bone, parietal bones, occipital bones, temporal bones, right? So the cranial bones that protect our brain, they regionally have that in common with the lobes of the brain, or the cerebrum, I should say. Deep to those lobes is an area of white matter that crosses the midline of your brain and goes a pretty decent distance into each half, each hemisphere of your cerebrum, and that is called the corpus callosum. The corpus callosum is the largest region of commissural fibers that your brain has. And commissural fibers is what you call fibers that travel left to right in your brain. Nerve fibers go left to right in your brain. They go superior to, an to uh, inferior in your brain, or up and down, they, they go vertical. And they move from gyrus to gyrus rostral and caudal. So the ones that go across left and right are called commissural fibers. The ones that go superior and inferior or up and down are called projection fibers. And the ones that go from gyrus to gyrus rostrally and caudally are called association fibers. And these are the ways that the different parts of the brain will actually communicate with each other because so many of the things that our brain is responsible for is a collaboration of multiple parts of our brain at the same time. So that's a big difference right there, right? So we, gotta, we have to kind of lose the, the tendency to think, well, this part of the brain does this, and this part of the brain does that, and this part of the brain does this, because really most of the things that our brains are capable of doing is a collaboration of many parts. Language is a big one of these. Language uses all different parts of your brain because language is not just about forming words. It's about creating a muscular plan to make those sounds happen. It's about receiving language and understanding it and understanding tone in someone's voice. Like if someone's being sarcastic or they're making a joke, you know, all those things are, you know, uh, a collaboration of different parts of your brain. If we look closely at that corpus callosum in your deep cerebrum, it's surrounded by a, a gyrus called the cingulate gyrus. And then just inferior to that corpus callosum is a fluid-filled space called a ventricle. Your brain has ventricles, four of them. And 
just inferior to this corpus callosum is the lateral ventricles. There's a left and a right of these two ventricles, and in between the two is a thin membrane that makes a wall separating the left and the right lateral ventricles. And that thin membranous, membranous wall is called the septum pellucidum. The floor of the lateral ventricles is another white matter structure of the cerebrum called the fornix. And then just inferior to the fornix is another space called the third ventricle. And that ventricle is right around the area of the thalamus. And it's also filled with cerebrospinal fluid, just like the lateral ventricle, and just like the fourth ventricle I mentioned earlier, and the superior sagittal sinus that I mentioned. And these things are all connected by foramina that are holes that allow this CSF, this cerebrospinal fluid, to flow from region to region of the brain. Whether it's surrounding the brain, like the superior sagittal sinus, or deep inside the brain, like the lateral ventricles, the third ventricle, and the fourth ventricle. Now remember, the third and fourth ventricle are connected by a channel, a little tunnel, called the cerebral aqueduct that travels through the midbrain of the brainstem. Now, anterior to the fornix, are small holes that allow the CSF to go from lateral ventricle to third ventricle called the interventricular foramina. And then the fourth ventricle, which is between the pons and medulla and the cerebellum, that has a small hole in it called the median aperture that's inferior to the cerebellum that allows the CSF to then leave the fourth ventricle and surround the cerebellum inside the meninges. So the meninges helps to contain the CSF. There's another space called the lateral aperture. And that lateral aperture also allows CSF to leave that space and get in and around other parts of the brain. The CSF will eventually make it into the subarachnoid space surrounding the cerebrum and then through little pouches extending into the superior sagittal sinus from the arachnoid uh, mater called arachnoid villi allows CSF to go into the superior sagittal sinus from the subarachnoid space. So there's a lot of areas surrounding the brain and brainstem and cerebellum that allows this cerebrospinal fluid to flow and do its job. And inside these ventricles, like the third, fourth, the, the uh, laterals, inside those spaces are uh, networks of blood capillaries called the choroid plexus. And blood plasma, which is watery, filters out of the holes in those capillaries and into these ventricles. And at that point, it becomes cerebrospinal fluid. Remember, location, location, location. It was blood plasma today, it's CSF tomorrow. And that cerebrospinal fluid is, is uh, really important to making sure that the brain kind of floats in its space 
inside the cranial cavity. So it gives the, the brain some buoyancy, right? It keeps, lets it float there. It's also really protective. So um, you don't want your brain banging up against the inside of your cranium when you, when you knock your head around. So that fluid gives it some protection. And it also helps to get rid of metabolic wastes from the nerve tissue and, ner and neurons in the brain and spinal cord so that you can get rid of all of the waste products that those cells are producing. Remember, these neurons, they're cells, right? So they have metabolic activity too and they have metabolic wastes and the CSF helps to uh, dispose or really kind of rinse the, the brain tissue off to get rid of a lot of those metabolic wastes so that way you don't have excesses of certain chemicals um, uh, in there and changing pH levels and and all kinds of stuff that could that could go haywire. So those are some really important roles of the cerebrospinal fluid. Okay, I think that's probably plenty for this intro into the brain. So we covered some of the anatomy. I know we didn't get as deep as your class probably does, but you can supplement with your materials. We're going to continue on with the brain in the next episode, probably look at the blood-brain barrier. We'll look at some more of the functions of these different anatomical regions uh, before we move further into the nervous system. So I hope this has helped you out. Thank you so much. I want to send out a big thank you to my very first guest, Dr. Chuck Welsh. Um, he is has been uh, very gracious to join us today, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation uh, with him. So thank you again. I really appreciate that. Uh, I also want to say thank you to ProductionCrate.com, which uh, provided some of the new extra music you heard in this episode. So again, thank you to Dr. Welsh. Thank you to all my listeners. I will talk to you next time. Hey everyone, don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a lot of tutor videos on there that I think could be really helpful. I also have an Instagram account and a Twitter feed with the same name. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media, with a special thanks to Bucks County Community College, McGraw-Hill Higher Education, and my family.